Alan McHale is a historian at Yale and the author of God's Shadow, the Ottoman Sultan who shaped the modern world. This is Alan McHale. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. I'm here with Alan McHale. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Um, so I wanted to talk to you. I, I was initially introduced uh, to you and your work through a great book that you wrote, uh, God's Shadow, Sultan Selim, His Ottoman Empire, and the Making of the Modern World. In, in that title is uh, something that's sort of key to what I wanted to get at here about how the Ottomans help make the modern world. And I'm curious, first off, your perspective as a historian, where you know, we in the West and in America in particular, sort of like reevaluating how we tell history in the classroom, uh, particularly our own history. Um, but it strikes me, looking back at my education, that we didn't learn a lot about the Ottomans and they had a huge impact on the kind of world that we live in today. Why do you think that they get played down or are like sometimes not even mentioned? Yeah, I mean, you are, I think, not. Um, alone in your experience of uh, having not received a lot of information or studied in any great depth the Ottoman Empire, or I might say maybe anything from uh, the Muslim past. Um, And you are right that one of the goals of the book is to try to recalibrate that a little bit. Um, But let me answer your question directly as to why uh, we don't have that as the central part of the story of the modern West or the making of the United States or anything like that. I think there are primarily two reasons. Um, One is uh, the historic um, confrontation, if you like, of Christendom and Islam. Um, I'm painting in very broad, broad brushstrokes here, of course. There were plenty of moments of quite positive interaction, exchange, et cetera. Um, But the kind of geopolitics of the Mediterranean from say, um, to pick a date, uh, you know, the the 13th century um, to the 19th century is one in which uh, the major kind of forces are um, those of the Muslim world, for lack of a better term. So primarily the Ottomans in the Mediterranean, but also the North African states um, and uh, various European powers. Um, The Ottomans are a large land-based territorial empire based on the extraction of resources from agriculture primarily. If you look at maps um, from the period, you will sort of see in the Eastern Mediterranean, in the Balkans and in North Africa, one color, the Ottoman Empire. And if you look at, you know, Western Europe, it's a lot of smaller principalities, sometimes aligned, sometimes not. Um, Charles V, of course, is a is a uh, a, a major figure um, in early modern um, history generally. Um, and amassed as a huge empire in Europe and then expands that empire. But the, the, the kind of basic story that I want to say is, is that there, there is a, a, a story of, um, if you like, uh, a competition between the Ottomans and various um, Western European powers. Um, and I think 
Uh, if you read the writings of Charles V, if you read the writings of various popes, you know, they're obsessed with this kind of um, enemy from the East, perceived or real, right? Um, so if we think of the United States as a kind of extension of Europe, you know, in one way or another, um, we as now Americans have inherited some of that story of Islam as uh, primary other, you know, closest um, civilizational kin to Western Christendom um, and uh, at one time a part of, of, of Europe and very, uh, on the one hand, a, a very real part of European history, if we think of um, cuisine or cultural exchange, um, even language, um, if we think of things like the translation movement in the medieval period, all, all of these ways in which um, Islam and Christendom are very much tied. There's a positive version of that story and there's a kind of more confrontational version of that story. And we've inherited that. Yeah. So I think that's one kind of major piece of why we don't uh, really learn about the Muslim past as our own past. Yeah. The other, um, in quotation marks, of course, our there. Um, in, in the, the other major piece of this, I think, you know, that's somewhat related is um, uh, a kind of 19th century projection backwards of European primacy. And then we might think of, you know, what, when America kind of takes over at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Um, and this kind of projection backward of the primacy of European power, civilization, um, economic might, political acumen, all of these kinds of things, right? Um, that's a 19th century story. If you were to, you know, be on the ground in the 17th century, the first half of the 18th century, it's not at all clear, quote unquote, that Europe is going to be the future of the world, right? right. Um, maybe China, maybe the Ottomans, um, but, you know, the Netherlands or England, eh, maybe not. Um, uh, but of course, you know, that's why we study history because things are never predetermined um, and there's contingency and we have to try to explain that. Um, but nevertheless, the, the 19th century sort of, you know, primacy of Europe um, projected backwards a story of, you know, the roots of um, English capitalism in the mercantile uh, lives of 17th century English merchants or something like that, or, you know, the birth of um, tolerance and uh, liberalism in the Netherlands in the 17th century, right? Um, all of these things, of course, have a grain of truth to them, but are, are projections backward from a place of, of primacy, right? Um, so in that story, you know, the, the kind of any, any kind of, um, um, if you like, back and forth story uh, that crosses confessional lines or uh, cultural lines um, between Europe and another part of the world, you know, is, is less important in that version of history. Um, and because, you know, the Muslim world, um, it wasn't the only place, of course, but it was a primary theater of European empire in the 19th century, right? It, it's hard to tell a story that these places that we're colonizing currently in the 19th century were somehow the most powerful states on earth in the 15th and the 16th and maybe the 17th centuries. There, a, a number of things uh, occurred to me as you were speaking there. 
Um, one of them, when you talked about the fact that these um, Western European states were more fractured as opposed to you could see this like solid belt of just like the Ottomans. And it, it, I'm sort of curious your take on this, where the Ottomans, even though we're referring to them as like an Islamic empire, they were in, in a lot of ways like more multicultural uh, and pluralist than Western Europe. And I, I guess what I don't understand is why didn't any of these like Western European like little fiefdoms play some kind of like international relations game where they maybe uh, became allies with the Ottomans? Was it purely just a religious divide? I mean, it, it feels like the Ottomans could have integrated them. Sure. So, you know, there's a lot in your question there. I mean, one, one thing to point out is, you know, again, again, in very broad brush jokes, if we say the Ottoman Empire is 600 years of history, 1300 to 1900, again, uh, not exactly, but just for the sake of argument, um, you know, at least for the first 200, maybe longer uh, years, it's a majority Christian empire, right? Meaning the majority of its population, the subject population are Christians, even if, um, the dynastic family is ostensibly Muslim, and we could talk about, you know, what exactly that might mean. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting to think about the Ottomans as a Christian state. No. Right? 200 years is a long time. I mean, you know, the United States has been around for roughly 200 years. So, um, you know, it's not insignificant. Um, another way to sort of approach your question is to point out that the Ottomans held more territory in what's conventionally thought of as Europe than a lot of European powers um, did at the time. So, you know, is that a claim to quote unquote being a part of, of Europe? I, I, I think it is. And I think there's a lot of interesting, good and necessary work to be done on the question of the Ottomans as a European slash Christian state and the implications of that for thinking about Europe, um, never mind the Ottomans. Um, and, 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 you know, the other part of your question about alliances between the Ottomans and other uh, European states. Th those happen quite a lot, yeah. um, precisely for the reasons that you point out, right? P people understand um, the kind of uh, power that the Ottomans uh, possessed in the early modern world and what an alliance with such a state might mean for them. Um, and so you have, you have records of diplomatic correspondence, of course, between various sultans and, and European powers throughout, uh, throughout Ottoman history. Um, and, and again, I mean, you know, in, in answer to your first question, um, I kind of gave you a, a, a pretty, um, you know, bold answer about Christendom and Islam. Um, you know, once you start to kind of unpack that um, and, and to think about some of the nuance um, in, in all of that, it becomes much more messy, of course. Um, and I think that's, you know, bringing, bringing the mess up is part of the story, right? Because it, it makes it makes these histories that we're interested in in our current moment much more complicated. If we think about um, some of the ways that Ottoman history, Muslim history more generally um, intersected with some of the things that, you know, we understand to be, again, part of our quote unquote own history, right? Whether that be in the book, you know, I have a chapter on the Reformation, for example, right? Uh, to think about how the Ottomans are a part of that history. Right, a, a history that that many people in the West um, take as again being part of their own, 
Um, and, and what if we had a much more expansive view of something like the Reformation that included a story about, um, you know, Luther's ideas about Islam or the kind of geopolitics that might have contributed to uh, some of what Luther and the early Protestants were up to. You know, that's just one example. Um, I, I'm curious, do, do you know the, uh, the historian uh, Tamim Ansari? I do. I, I haven't read any of the work, but I know the name. Oh, okay. Well, I wanted to get your take on sort of uh, a question that could have like a book book length answer, which is basically like, why didn't uh, the Industrial Revolution start in the Ottoman Empire as opposed to like Western Europe, where they had invented like the steam engine before in like parts of the Islamic Empire. They had invented the steam engine, I think in China at some point. Um, and largely like, the the ottomans were especially when we compare like the the middle ages europe um they were they were way more scientifically technologically advanced um and sort of his contention is that uh there was a cultural difference that in western europe it had become more individualized you had this quote-unquote protestant work ethic and uh that sort of led to the development of this like capitalist ecosystem where um Whereas in like the Ottoman world, there were all these artisans and uh, didn't have that sort of like individualist ethic. And then once the industrial revolution like went underway, people looked and said like, oh, we want all these goods. And so we want to like transplant this system into our world, but they didn't have like the cultural context. And so that caused uh, that, that made it trickier to like catch up. Uh, is that I'm probably getting his like thesis wrong, but do you have any like thoughts on that? So I'm not having read any of this work that you're uh, that that you're bringing up. Um, yeah, I mean, I am loath to ascribe um, the huge processes to culture. Okay. Um, so to say that there's something sort of inherent in. Ottoman culture or, and, and what does that even mean, Ottoman culture, right? That, that's a construct, right? Yeah. Um, uh, or Islam or something like that is, is, you know, is part of the reason that um, the Industrial Revolution didn't happen in the Ottoman Empire or that capitalism didn't develop in the, in the Ottoman Empire. This is a quite an old Orientalist trope okay. um, of ascribing, you know, backwardness uh, in an older version, decline, stagnation, et cetera to uh, something inherent in um, 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 a, a cultural, civilizational, or religious component of a society. Um, and it's still alive and, and kicking today. I mean, th there are Ottoman historians who uh, ascribe a lot to culture, um, you know, um, or who talk about why um, capitalism didn't develop in the Ottoman Empire. Generally, I find histories of why things didn't happen in a certain place to be yeah. kind of a backwards way of thinking about, about history yeah. um, rather than explaining what happened, explaining why something didn't happen. Um, so um, yeah, that would be my answer to that question. Okay. Fair enough. So when you, you know, it, it is like an interesting question, at least to me of like, okay, you have the civilization that was way more technologically advanced. Western Europe was kind of able to like, sort of like, take advantage of a lot of these like new technologies, new ideas, and then do something with them where it seems like the balance of power has like flipped as a result. And it's like, as a historian, do you just like not like to 
does it just not make sense to like deal with the sort of oh as you said what didn't happen like you just don't go there no i mean so the 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 main the main way that i approach this question in the book yeah um is a story of um you know given all of their political economic technological as you um are suggesting um advantages over various European powers. Why didn't the Ottomans, for example, cross the Atlantic, right? Um, and I give some example, I, I give some guesses in the book as to why that didn't happen, right? Um, so they are, uh, essentially they didn't need to. Right? Right. They had all the um, keys to geopolitical power, not all, but a, a lot of the keys to geopolitical power in the old world, you know, uh, being the middlemen of trade between the Mediterranean and the, and the Indian Ocean, uh, having a standing army, uh, having uh, large revenues off of taxation. Um, they didn't need to sort of wager on a risky, um, unfounded, kind of pipe dream that there's another route to Asia. Yeah. Right? Even the very idea of another route to Asia suggests Ottoman power, right? Why, why do we need another route to Asia? It's because the Ottomans are controlling the middle and making it difficult for us to, uh, to, to operate. So, um, and obviously, you know, in, in 1492, and we might even say in 1592, it's not at all clear for anybody, um, that you know, from a European perspective, that 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 the Americas are the keys to future power in the world, right? Um, it's a you know a, through the middle of the 17th, maybe even into the early 18th century, we have fledgling little kind of city-state colonies off uh, off the uh, the the northern Atlantic coast um, down into the Caribbean. Um, you know, the, the, to turn a profit in any of these places is very iffy. Um, settling large, you know, non-indigenous populations in these places is very iffy. I mean, the Americas, you know, remains um, for quite a long time. And in some places, even today still, you know, the, the vast domain of the indigenous peoples of the Americas. Right. Um, so, you know, in, in that context, you know, it, 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 is a, it is a sign of weakness that the European states crossed the Atlantic, right? Um, it's not a sign of power. And so, you know, if you are a powerful state like the Ottomans, um, you know, why would you engage in weakness? Yeah. I mean, again, that's a very kind of, you know, I'm, I'm giving you very pointed answers, but, but that's, um, you know, in a just kind of very basic sense. That's, that, that, that's how I would answer the question of why not this, right? right. Why, why, why not this thing that seems so, um, so seemingly obvious to us today, right? That, that if, if one could, one would have done this, yeah. Yeah, it, it's just, it, it kind of feels like a sort of, and maybe this is not the appropriate analogy, but like a familiar story of disruption where it's like you have like the sort of inherited legacy powers and they don't have a motivation to like take big gambles. It becomes sort of like um, 
the one thing that people say about like Microsoft is like, oh, it's a, a country club now. It's no longer the uh, disruptors. And, uh, you know, not like they're failing or anything. But point being is that the the upstarts, I guess, tend to take those big gambles. And the only time you can get like a huge reward is taking a big risk. So, I mean, it, it, in terms of the management of the Ottoman Empire, was that something that they were, they certainly engaged in these wars of conquest, but did they have uh, like sort of a, a, a much larger ambition to continue growing? Do they want to just keep a certain size and say, okay, here's what we've got. Things are working well. Um, what was like the sort of like idea at the top of where they should take this thing? Okay. Um, the Ottoman Empire as Silicon Valley Corporation. I like it. Um, so I can answer, let me say a couple of things. Um, one is uh, the, the first part of your question in describing, um, you know, upstarts that then beget, get comfortable, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, there is the very famous um, uh, North African, he's called now sociologist, philosopher of history, you know, we could call him Ibn Khaldun has yeah. a theory about this, right? Which is, which is essentially the one that you laid out that, um, you know, um, uh, comfortable cities are um, seen as a prize and there are these um, groups of nomadic peoples or people from another place um, that don't have the resources of cities and have to work to organize, to come up with strategies, to pool their resources, to come up with ways of capturing something like a walled city. Um, and that there's an incentive there for innovation and advancement and et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, if they're able to do that, right, uh, they take control of the city. And after a certain period of time of, you know, always being vigilant at first to make sure that the advantages they gained are protected, um, you know, um, not becoming complacent, et cetera, et cetera. After a certain amount of time, they do become complacent, right? And they become comfortable in the cities. And then they become the kind of urban elite that a new upstart, you know, in Ibn Khaldun's uh, conception, they're from outside of the city, right? From outside, coming from elsewhere, um, are now going to repeat that process. So he's very into this kind of cyclical notion of history um, that, uh, you know, is useful to think about and is, is an interesting one and is one that, um, you know, people in the Muslim world um, across, you know, from the early modern centuries to the present are quite aware of, right? Um, and, and people outside of the Muslim world now are, are quite aware of Ibn Khaldun as well. Um, so that's one way of answering um, your, your question. The other one, again, that's more kind of directly tied to the book. And one of the, the reasons that I was interested in this topic at all and wanted to write this book, it was not about Salim. Right. It's about um, 15, 16, 15, 17, which is the um, moment of the largest geographical expansion of the Ottoman Empire in its 600 years. Mm. Um, led by Selim, um, a conquest of the Mamluk Empire um, that had its capital in Cairo and um, ruled basically, you know, half of North Africa. Right. Um, the eastern half of North Africa, um, and then into um, Syria, Jordan, Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, eastern Anatolia, into parts of western Iraq, all those places today, 
um, kind of what, what we generally think of as the Middle East, right? Um, uh, Selim conquers that empire and also has some other conquests uh, in Western Iran and up into the Caucasus and things um, and brings that territory into the Ottoman Empire. Of course, some of them not immediately, you know, it takes some time for administration to transfer all of those kinds of things, but basically brings that entire geographic expanse into the Ottoman Empire, giving it the shape that um, it will have roughly um, into uh, the 20th century until its end in World War I. Some territory came in and out again, but you know, basically giving it the shape that it would have from 1516 until its end in World War I. So I wanted to understand what more than doubling the size of the empire meant yeah. um, for the empire domestically, right? This is the period in which it becomes demographically a very different kind of empire, right? Much more Muslim, much more um, quote unquote Eastern, if you like. It brings in huge populations of Kurds and Arabs and um, you know, Persian speakers, um, Turkmen, all kinds of, of, of new people. Um, you know, this is the moment when the empire goes from being a pretty, you know, powerful, but still geographically fairly concentrated empire um, in the Balkans and Western Anatolia to really a kind of huge um, land-based expanse. Um, so I wanted to understand what that meant for administration, notions of kingship in the empire and legitimacy, um, the law, all of that kind of stuff. And I wanted to also understand what this huge moment of imperial expansion meant on a global scale, meant for world history. Um, so um, yeah, so the, on the question of expansion, that is, that is the major one that I'm interested in in the book. Yeah. And on that note, then, one of the things that I've sort of discovered uh, talking to historians, uh, especially about like conquerors, is all these figures had some sort of like pro-social story that they told to themselves about why they were doing what they were doing. E even a guy like Genghis Khan, I, I talked to a, a Mongol historian, and he uh, he very clearly sympathized with the sort of, uh, sort of like themes of national greatness. And uh, he was like kind of offended when I suggested that this guy was like a, a sort of a rampaging, you know, conqueror because they're the story they told themselves was, you know, we are uh, we're increasing like trade routes. Uh, we're developing all these like new systems of laws. We're actually really respecting, you know, uh, our, our subjects and, um, you know, kind of kind of like sort of the story we tell ourselves about like Iraq. It's like, oh, we were under attack. We had to like get these people. What was the story that the Ottomans told themselves about why they were doing what they were doing? Yeah. So first, let me say, I mean, I have no kind of um, sympathies towards Salim of the sort that you described. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah. Right, right, right. You know, he. Um, you know, I'm I'm very clear in the book about you know his kind of violent rampages and. Um, you, you know, killing, massacring his own subject populations, never mind the people that he was, you know, his, his foreign enemies. Um, you know, there's a lot of severed heads in the book. Yes. Um, okay. So, um, but the story that the Ottomans tell themselves, that's a great question. Um, and one that, um, you know, that I wanted to uh, point to um, 
in the book. So I'm going to sort of give you a roundabout answer to your question, but I'm going to, I'm going to get there. So in, in the, in the kind of normal story of Ottoman history, um, or, you know, the conventional account of Ottoman history, right. Is that it, 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 um, it reaches the peak of its power, um, in the reign of Suleiman the Magnificent. Okay. Selim's son, yeah. uh, the Sultan who comes to power after Selim. Um, and that is the age in which we have, you know, monumental architecture and uh, all this kind of flourishing of the arts, poetry, painting, et cetera. Um, you know, the diplomatic exchanges that Suleiman has with European powers and like Mughal emperors and stuff, the height of the kind of power of the Ottoman empire. Um, this is when you have the quote unquote perfection of, you know, bureaucratic practices of various kinds, all happens under Suleiman. So um, that is a story that um, Ottoman historians at the time, so in the 16th century, were talking about the glories of the Suleimanic age, right? Yeah. Um, that will change after Suleiman, very pretty soon after Suleiman, at the end of the 16th century. He dies in 1566, but at the end of the 16th century, those Ottoman historians at that time will start talking about how Suleiman actually laid the seeds of uh, the kind of uh, uh, weakness of the empire that would develop in their own time. But at the time of Suleiman, the, 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 the Ottomans are telling themselves a very, um, a very celebratory story, right? Selim, um, as as um, doesn't doesn't do that. Um, he uh, he does write some of his own poetry. Um, of course, his advisors talk about him in very praiseworthy terms and those kinds of things. I mean, I think part of the reason is he dies very soon after uh, this conquest. Um, he only returns to Istanbul like a year and a half after, uh, before he dies. And he spends a lot of that time um, dealing with the kind of um, the the uh, the results of the conquest, appointing people and dealing with bureaucratic headaches. He goes on lots of hunting trips. Um, so we might say he wasn't interested in that kind of public relations uh, kind of work, quote unquote, um, or he didn't have enough time. Um, but um, so one of the points I want to make in the book is that. Um, Suleiman is a result of Selim, right? Obviously in a very real way in the sense that it was his son, but, but this kind of story of a golden age in the Ottoman Empire is one that um, only works thanks to Selim's territorial conquests, right? right. Um, it's 1516, 1517 that really made um, the golden age. Um, and, you know, so I wanted to kind of put a little bit more focus on a different part of Ottoman history, not the Suleimanic story, but on um, the story of, um, you know, what made possible something like Suleiman's reign. Um, and that's, uh, that's a kind of call to historians, right? To sort of say, you know, we need to stop just focusing on this one very canonical figure that we've always focused on. I mean, there's work on Selim, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of work on Selim. But um, Suleiman still, even today, is still uh, considered uh, uh, the kind of, uh, you know, pinnacle of, of the 36 Ottoman sultans. Um, and so to pivot away from that lens and then to pivot more towards a focus on 
this moment of 1516, 1517 as one of um, uh, importance for the Ottoman Empire. And I guess part of what I'm trying to, to get at with this question is it seems like Europe is still, their imagination is really gripped by the, the Crusades. Is that also true of the Ottomans or is that sort of a secondary concern for them? The Crusades? Correct. Well, I mean, the, you know, the, so, I mean, the, the Ottomans are in some ways the recipients of the Crusades, right? Um, in, in the sense that, um, you know, it's European armies who are seeking to reclaim Jerusalem um, from Muslim hands. First the Mamluks, right? And then the Ottomans in 1516, 1517. Um, uh, that's not to say that the Ottomans don't use religion for war making. Um, this is a debate in Ottoman history, the extent to which Islam is, is uh, a motivating factor in warfare. Um, but uh, the, the kind of mentality of, um, uh, you know, this final eschatological battle between yes. forces of good and evil, that, that exists in Ottoman letters um, to, to uh, a wide extent. Um, you know, in, I, I, on the one hand, it, it's, um, it's not really about Jerusalem, but rather Rome, okay. right? Um, um, for some Ottoman authors, um, it, uh, it's also the, the case for European authors, right? They'll talk about, um, you know, the, the Ottoman sultans, uh, there are rumors of seeing Ottoman ships off the Italian coast, right? This idea that uh, they captured the first uh, Rome, right? Um, or the second Rome, depending on your perspective, and uh, are coming for the second Rome, right? The, one, of the, um, one of the popes that I quote in the book has this very evocative line, right, that uh, the Ottomans in capturing Constantinople had plucked out one of the eyes of Christendom, right? Yeah. So the idea that they're coming for the second eye, you know, was always a live one in, um, in uh, European minds. But to the question of crusades, um, that's, that's really a European phenomenon. Um, you know, one of the one of the ways that I bring it up in the book is um, just to remind us of the fact that the Crusades extended into the 17th century. It's not only a, a phenomenon of the medieval period, um, and you know, was a live concern for people like Columbus, uh, Isabella, um, and and others. When you said the um the fear about the Ottomans plucking out the other eye. Was that fear at all justified? Um, you know, the, there's, you know, in 1480, the Ottomans um, land on Otranto, which is uh, on the very tip of the heel of the Italian peninsula um, and hold the city for some, I think, eight months. Um, and you know, rule the city, undertake, uh, you know, they kill a lot of people, um, but they are, you know, for both domestic reasons and um, um, reasons of geopolitics are expelled from, from Italy. That's their only holding on the Italian peninsula in all of, uh, in all of their history. Um, so, you know, at, at the level of rhetoric, um, even if some Ottoman writers might've engaged in, 
um, this kind of um, talk of, of capturing Rome. In, in actual fact, the Ottomans were never a real threat to, to you know, to capture Rome. Do you see at all any parallels? And again, this may be a bad analogy between during the Cold War when people thought, you know, all oh, the Soviets are going to come marching into Western Europe. And then after the fact, you look at internal records and most people in the State Department are like, eh, they probably weren't ever going to do that. Is this just like a fear drummed up for whatever domestic geopolitical reasons? Yeah, I mean, dr drummed up or actually felt by... Um you know, popes and, uh, and other European figures. Um, no, I think the, the fear of the Ottomans was quite real okay, yeah. in, um, in, in Western Europe, right? I mean, to the extent that, um, you know, and I, I mentioned this in the book, this is building off the work of an excellent um, uh, scholar, um, um, Caroline Cook, in a book um, entitled Forbidden Passages. Um, to the extent that, um, you know, off the western coast of South America, Spanish officials claim to have seen Turkish ships yeah, yeah, yeah. about to invade. Complete fantasy. Right. The Ottomans never had ships off the west coast of South America um, in the same way that it was complete fantasy uh, that, um, you know, some claim to see ships off the coast of Italy. Yeah. Right. Uh, about to uh, about to land an army to to take Rome. So that fear is very real. Um, you know, I don't really get into the, I, I don't talk about in the book that much, you know, where that fear comes from or anything like that. Um, but it's certainly live in, uh, in, in the early modern period, right? I mean, the Ottomans do land, you know, merchants slash um, sailors slash soldiers in Spain. On the on the coast of Spain, um, you know, very briefly, right? Um, so, you know, but but the kind of story that 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 Islam is somehow going to march across Europe or something is, you know, that 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 is completely unfounded in any kind of you know actual um, historical way. Um, but fears at various points, and it waxes and wanes, um, um, exists. Do, do you think? Uh, on sort of a, a similar subject, do you think they Western Europe needed to find like a a, a route around the Ottomans um, uh, across the ocean? Uh, was that just a, a, a totally unnecessary gamble? Um, you know, it, it is the case that that you know Ottoman merchants and um, you know toll collectors um, and middlemen were exacting um, um, payments from European merchants, both in the Ottoman Empire um, and those moving through it to try to get to, um, to South Asia, Southeast Asia. Um, but there are plenty, there's a lot of commerce that's happening between Europe and the Ottoman Empire. Um, there are a lot of European merchants who are stationed in the Ottoman Empire. They will get concessions of various kinds over the centuries. Um, so it's, um, it's, you know, is it necessary or not necessary? I, you know, it, I, I'm not sure. It depends on one's perspective, right? Um, um, but the, um, the idea that, um, you know, we need to find an, an alternate route to 
to Asia is, you know, one of commerce, one of geopolitics. And I think one of also, uh, there's a, a religious element to it. And that's that's where the, the crusading question comes in again, right? If, if you read some of Columbus's writings um, that builds off of earlier writings, um, he's interested in this idea of finding Christians, right, in, in Asia. Yeah. Um, or finding those who are open to converting to Christianity, right? in a way that will then surround um, Muslims, right? Surround uh, Muslims between the Mediterranean and some, you know, part of Asia. Um, and he talks about uh, uh, this kind of um, apocalyptical scenario whereby Christians um, on either side of the Muslim world uh, can come together in a kind of pincer move to retake Jerusalem and, um, you know, um, bring about the glory of the earth. So, um, so, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot feeding into this idea of finding an alternative route to Asia. We, we, you know, in an older generation, people talked about Columbus as, you know, this kind of genius cartographer explorer, you know, of course that's wrong and nobody believes that anymore. Then we sort of talked about him as a kind of, you know, very, um, adept, savvy, economic actor, right? Um, and now we kind of think that's not really the case either. Um, you know, I'm trying to insert a little bit more of a kind of idea of him as uh, a believer, um, a crusader, a religious zealot of a certain kind um, to help us to understand something of, of, of the kind of motivations of, of, of Christian states um, in the period. Um, and to also understand something of what happens once um, he lands in the Americas. Yeah. Although he doesn't admit uh, ever uh, until he goes to his deathbed thinking that he's landed in Asia or not wanting to say that he hasn't landed in Asia. Yeah, it's a, a pretty funny, uh, not willing to just sort of step out of yourself and like all right fine i missed asia um but okay i i guess um w one of the things that you talked about earlier when uh on the subject of sort of like religious uh zealotry um is you said something about like the leaders of the ottomans being ostensibly uh you know muslim is there more to the story there? Uh, were they privately unbelievers or just non, or, you know, indifferent to religion? Uh, you know, I mean, look, a lot of that depends on what you think religion is. Um, sure. You know, but the, the kind of uh, canonical things people cite is, you know, no Ottoman Sultan went on the Hajj, right? If the pilgrimage is supposed to be the duty, one of the duties of every able-bodied Muslim, uh, you would think that the Ottoman Sultans would go on Hajj. A lot of them drank a lot. Um, uh, you know, it, it's it, it, it's hard to read belief into um, into many of the sultans, but it's also possible to read belief into many of the sultans. Um, so they are, you know, they use the language of Islam, of course in terms of kingship and history and authority. Um, uh, but, you know, what they believe in their hearts and all those kinds of things, it's, it's not clear. Another way that people have approached this question is to, 
is to talk about their mothers, right? So um, a lot, I think every single Sultan, um, uh, the mother of every Sultan was um, a harem slave um, who would have been born a Christian um, and uh, brought to the um, center of Ottoman power, um, converted to Islam um, and given certain privileges of being a member of the harem. So if we think, you know, maybe they were in, involved in some large element of their education, did that involve telling them something of Christianity um, or of the place that they came from or teaching them other languages, those kinds of things. So, um, you know, and how much did that figure into their worldview? You know, those are all difficult and I think open questions. Um, but yeah. So when I was saying ostensibly, um, I meant that it's, you know, it's, can we, can we read, um, can we read anything about religion in their, in their actions? I would also ask us, you know, we tend to think about Islam differently than we do other religions, I think, in the sense that we tend to think that, you know, a quote unquote Muslim leader is motivated by, uh, by Islam more than a quote unquote Christian leader is motivated by Christianity, for example, right? Um, you know, is Macron trying to um, extend the working age of, of uh, the French populace? Can, is that a Catholic move on his part? You know, um, so, you know, whenever I teach these things um, and we talk about the Ottomans, you know, expanding their empire, people are like, oh, well, the students wanna know, how much was Islam a motivating factor for them? Yeah. And I, and I say, you know, it was clearly something of a factor, but it wasn't the only one. I mean, empires expand, right? Um, when we talk about, you know, the Venetians, um, are we interested in Christianity as a motivating factor for their expansion? Or is it about commerce and land and sea lanes and those kinds of things? Obviously, it's, it's probably a combination of things. So I, I, I do, I'm trying to always get people to sort of think about, you know, the Ottomans, Muslims on kind of the same footing. Yeah, and also kind of, you know, from your book and kind of what we're talking about here, it, it seems like a lot of like the Western Christian states, especially with like the Crusades in their mind, were probably more like explicitly motivated by religion um, than a lot of the Ottoman conquests, no? For sure, for sure. And yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to swing the pendulum so far that to say that the, that the Ottomans weren't motivated by religion. I think that the, the bigger point is that, as, as you're saying, that in this period, in the 16th century, most states had some kind of religious legitimation behind them that they used for various purposes. And you also mentioned uh, in the, your previous answer about how every um, Ottoman Sultan's mom was a harem slave. Uh, did any did, did any of them like free their mom once they took power, or was that what was the deal there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so you know, um, well, let, let me answer a couple of ways. So, um, mothers of the sultans become very powerful figures, and I talk about in the book how. Um, 
the system whereby mothers become kind of the sponsors of their sons to become sultans. So when the, when the sons are princes, the mothers become kind of the primary force in trying to ensure that they will win out in the succession struggle to become the sultan, right? If you, be, if you, you know, if the mother-son team wins in that um, and you become the uh, imperial mother, as she's called, that's a very powerful position in the empire. No. Um, and she acts as, as a free person. Um, we have, you know, orders that they wrote, um, um, corresponding with military people in various periods with very young sultans, they become kind of in, 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 in all but name, the kind of ruling, uh, figure in the empire. Um, Suleiman very famously frees uh, one of his concubines um, and marries her as his wife. And this is, you know, this kind of soap opera level, uh, both literally and figuratively, uh, story of uh, part of the reign of, of Suleiman. Yeah, um, we're almost at an hour here. I don't want to take up too much of your time. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you is uh, sort of part, part of what made me interested in the Ottomans in the first place was going to Turkey. And I've spent uh, probably like around like six months of time in the country in total. I, I love this country. The politics of it are complicated and uh, sometimes like dismaying. Um, and one of the sort of features of, of like Erdogan's reign or whatever you want to call it, um, is sort of this hearkening back to uh, the Ottoman glory days, uh, while at the same time becoming more sort of explicitly Islamic, less pluralistic. Um, do you feel like in any way um, he, he's doing justice, injustice to the Ottoman legacy? Um, is this just a marketing tactic? Yeah, that's a good question. Um... You know, it's a really interesting phenomenon, right? Um, since 1923, the founding of the Turkish Republic, until Erdogan's reign, again, in very broad brushstrokes, most leaders of the Republic were invested in distancing, distancing themselves from the Ottoman past, right? 1923 was made out to be a clean break, right? We're, no, we're not religious, we're secular. Um, we're not an empire, we're a republic. We're not Ottoman, we're Turkish, right? Um, and that led to a lot of violence um, and a lot of kind of forgetting of the past, uh, mangling of the past, etc. Erdogan also partakes of a lot of violence and mangling of the past, but in a very different way. So, um, you know, it, it, it's under his, um, it's under his rule that we have uh, this kind of Ottoman revivalism, right? Erdogan says, instead of ignoring the Ottoman past as backward and something we're ashamed of, is something we should embrace as, uh, you know, a glorious past in which we ruled on three continents and we're, we're a major player in uh, world history and we're the leaders of the Muslim world and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he's interested in giving a very 
um, a view of the Ottoman past that is one of um, almost religiously endowed kingship. Again, always with a mind of an analogy for himself, right? Um, uh, A power in which that was the main power in the Middle East. So the kind of geopolitics of, of Middle Eastern politics that he's interested in, right? Of facing down um you know egypt and um um you know playing the saudis and iran off of one another and all that kind of stuff um you know speaking strongly against israel you know he gets a lot of mileage out of that um you know standing up for gas rights in the mediterranean for example things like that so that kind of geopolitics um so he sees a very um a kind of um, forward-leaning, aggressive Muslim Ottoman Empire. That's the Ottoman Empire that he wants to enliven. You know, there's a whole other strand of Turkish academic and popular interest in the Ottomans that see them as pluralistic, as um, the empire is a multi-ethnic empire, as somehow European, um, you know, the issue we talked about religion, the, the sultans were never really that religious, right? Look, they drank and they did this and they did that. So, you know, they were kind of Muslims in name, but not really in the same way that like a lot of secular Turks will say, yeah, I'm a Muslim, but, you know, I drink and I do this. And, you know, so um, th- there's that kind of domestic struggle happening in modern day Turkey between the place of religion and society um, that gets played out in Ottoman history, too. Um you know, so as an Ottoman historian, it's, you know, it's interesting to observe that, obviously, <laughs> you know, when, when I'm in Turkey. I mean, it's interesting also that I think one of the things that Erdogan's um, sort of pumping up of, of the Ottoman Empire, again, in his very specific way, one of the results of that has been more interest in the Ottoman past, you know, by professional historians, um, um, you know, in, in, you know, the people that I'm interested in, in, in professional historians. Um, and so we've seen a flourishing in Ottoman history over the past few decades, um, that has, you know, there are many factors there, right? It has to do with access to sources and all those kinds of things too. Um, but that, you know, there is a, there is a quote unquote market in Turkey for, for work on the Ottoman empire and then outside also, right. And there's a struggle, you know, in historical circles of trying to figure out the place of the Ottoman empire in in um, thinking about early modern history or 19th century history or late medieval history or something like that um, as a way of telling more capacious stories about the past, right? To get to some of the issues we were talking about at the beginning. Um, The final thing I'll just say, um, and this is a good ending maybe for our conversation since it's also the ending of the book, is that I end with um, the construction of the third bridge over the Bosphorus. Um, which Erdogan sponsored. Um, So, you know, you've been to Turkey, for those who haven't, the Bosphorus bisects Istanbul. Um, It's the, um, it's the, the waterway that divides Europe from Asia, etc. And, and the city, you know, um, uh, straddles those two sides. They're historically two bridges that um, crossed the Bosphorus so that one could drive from one side to the other. There are other connectors, the subway goes underneath the water and all of that, and there are lots of boats and things, but whatever, there are three bridges. Um, And the first one was just called the Bosphorus Bridge um, after the strait. The second one was 
uh, named after the Mehmed the Conqueror, the Ottoman Sultan who conquered Constantinople in 1453. So that kind of makes good sense, I think, right? If this is, you know, the the making the the city an Ottoman and eventually Turkish city. Um, and uh, the third bridge, um, Erdogan chooses to name it after Salim. Um, you know, which there is no reason to do that, right? I mean, it, he, he could have named it after any sultan, other historical personage. He could have named it after himself. He could have named it after any number of people or things or places. Um, but, you know, I, are, I, I, I make the point that I think he does it for very specific reasons, right? So that kind of, Salim embodies uh, Erdogan's view of the Ottoman past, right? He conquered all this territory. He brought Mecca and Medina, you know, the heartland of the Muslim world into the Ottoman Empire, right? Um, he went after his domestic enemies, something Erdogan does. He went after his foreign enemies, something Erdogan also does. Um, he, Salim represents that kind of very aggressive, um, expansionist, re religiously interested slash endowed figure from the Ottoman past that, you know, Erdogan wants to draw a line to himself with, right? When I was writing the book, um, uh, some of it was during the Trump years, and I would often liken this relationship to the way that Trump would invoke Andrew Jackson, right? Yeah. Um, as a kind of progenitor for his style of American leadership. And I think Salim plays, does similar work for, uh, for Erdogan. Mm. Well, uh, yes, that, that is a good note to end it on. Um, I'm glad even if uh, Turkish democracies is being eroded, at least the, uh, the the Ottoman historical industry is being puffed up. Um, but for, for better or worse, for better for or better. worse. Um, in any case, uh, Alan, it was a pleasure talking with you. Um, the book is God's Shadow, Sultan, uh, Sultan Selim, His Ottoman Empire and the Making of the Modern World. Is there anything else that uh, you want to share people, uh, share with people, uh, a link to a website, books, et cetera? Um, I can I can send you the link to my website. It's it's in my signature. OK, great. Yeah, um, just alanmikhail.org. Sweet. Uh, great talking to you. And thanks again for your time. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. All right. Thank you to Alan McHale, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. See you next time.